0: This episode of Israel's Story is brought to you by Best Day Adventures, who offer specialized trips for active Jewish singles in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. They plan their trips to a T, with top-notch services, fun icebreakers, and an indulgence of enriching discoveries designed to create a warm, welcoming environment. In 2018, Best Day Adventures offers some really extraordinary trips. There's a customized tour of Israel, a deeply meaningful people-to-people mission to Cuba, a summer sojourn on a Danube River cruise through Austria, Germany, Prague, and Budapest, and even a Northern Lights and Iditarod adventure to Alaska. Plus, if you use the code ISRAELSTORY when registering before the end of January 2018, you'll get a bonus $50 off. So visit bestdayadventures.com and start packing your bags. Last spring, I stumbled upon an article in Arez. It was written by David Green and told the mysterious tale of an abandoned royal palace in the middle of Jerusalem. Now, I've lived in Jerusalem my whole life. I have an entire wall in my living room full of books about the city. And I go on neighborhood walking tours more or less whenever I can. But an abandoned palace? In Jerusalem? I'd never even heard of it. So I called David and asked him to take me there.
1: Hi, Mishi.
0: Hey, David, Hi. how are you doing?
1: Are you, uh, actually?
0: Yeah, I think I am. I'm right outside okay. your house.
1: Okay, I'll be down in, um, one and a half minutes.
0: No problem. I'm okay. here. Bye-bye. Right. A minute later, he showed up with a safari hat and
1: some sunscreen on his nose.
0: Hi, David. Hi. Hey, Mishi. You look ready to go.
1: <laughs> I am. I have my uh, my hiking boots on because it's pretty prickly up there. Oh, yeah, prickly.
0: you said not to come with sandals, and then I completely forgot about that. Oh, uh, well.
1: Next time, you'll remember. Yeah. You'll
0: remember. Even though David had come so prepared, we kind of got lost navigating the small streets of Bet Hanina
1: in East Jerusalem. Right. Got us to the right neighborhood, but... 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 Okay. Straight here? Yeah, you know, what? what we'll do is... Oh, shut up.
0: After a while,
1: and with a little
0: help from Waze, we finally made it. All right, here we go. We got out of the car and stepped into what seemed like a concert of muazins calling people to pray.
1: So, uh, we're at the base of a hill known as Givah, or in Arabic, Tel El Ful. And what we see right now is, uh... Field of of weeds and of uh, looks like wheat, but it's not a very bucolic image of late spring, with the terraced roof of the of the unbuilt, unfinished palace at the top of the hill. We started climbing up the mound. Okay, so here we are. What
0: are we What are we looking at?
1: We're looking at the concrete frame of a kind of an um, Arabic-looking building. It looks like like a very, very large villa, you know? I would would say uh, uh, a mansion by American terms.
0: The first thing you notice about the structure is just how odd it is. It's somehow regal and grungy, majestic and trippy, all at once. Most of its walls were never built, but those that were are now covered with graffiti. The word Gaza is spray-painted all over the place, in both English and Arabic, as is the word Adil, which means justice.
1: You know, there are signs that people come here and uh, party. You mean like these these bonfires and broken bottles? Yeah.
0: So basically this looks like any deserted construction site. Right. Except that it's, of course, not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's bizarre. It's really bizarre. There are people who are dumping their garbage here. You know, building contractors are dumping their waste, and other people coming up here in the nighttime and doing I don't know what.
0: We began exploring the site. Going into the basement of the building. Oh, wow. This is a serious basement here. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. would have been a nice uh, lap pool.
0: Walking around the palace, you can sort of squint and imagine the potential glory of this place. How the king who built it would have sat on the balcony, sipping lemonade and enjoying the cool breeze. Or if he wanted to impress his guests, maybe take them up to the second floor, where David and I were now standing, to show them the view. And I have to tell you, it's honestly one of the most breathtaking vistas I've ever
1: seen. And you have a view, with every, you know, 360-degree view in every direction, and it's a beautiful one. You look toward the Dead Sea and the hills of Jordan on the east. You look toward the Mediterranean Sea and the coast, Tel Aviv coast, to the west, and. Um, all of Jerusalem to the south of us. Right, right. To the north of us, Ramallah and the northern West Bank.
0: You could imagine this being the most beautiful house in all of Jerusalem.
1: <laughs> Just being here feels good. The air, the breeze is so uh, sweet.
0: Okay, by this point you probably have a lot of questions. Why is there an abandoned palace here? Who is that king? Where is he? And how could it be that in a city where real estate prices are skyrocketing and where every possible inch of land is fought over, there's this huge, virtually unknown deserted hill with such spectacular views? In our episode today, King of the Hill, we'll try to answer some of those questions. And we're gonna do so by telling a story about a place. A place that's switched hands and switched leaders. A place that was destined to house kings and queens, to welcome heads of state, glitterati, Hollywood A-listers, and billionaires. And instead today is a no man's land that anyone can freely wander into, and mainly shelters junkies and teenagers who wanna have sex. Welcome to Tel El Ful, in East Jerusalem. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel's Story. Israel's Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. I've been going to Tel El Ful almost every week since that first visit with David back in May. And it's hard really to capture the feeling you get there. I wish you could just come on a field trip with me and see it for yourself. But till that happens, I guess the best way to describe it is to ask you to close your eyes and conjure up the White House, all covered with graffiti, open on all sides, full of trash, broken bottles, and condom wrappers. But Tel el Ful is more than just a place with a fascinating past and a great panorama. It's a symbol of Middle Eastern geopolitics, of competing identities, of pride, of stagnation, of a lack of leadership, and, probably more than anything, of the status quo. It's sort of like an onion. You can peel off layer after layer of meaning in an attempt to start to understand this endlessly complicated region, this endlessly complicated city, Jerusalem. Let's begin. Act 1, the concubine and the king. Okay, so can you tell me the story of the concubine in Giva?
2: How the children listen to it because it's not as, a... As you want. <clears throat> okay. That's Gil Kopatch, Mr. Gil
3: <laughs>
2: I'm a comedian. I'm a stand-up comedian.
3: Kablu at Gil Kopach.
0: Yil became a household name in Israel back in the mid 90s, when he was still, as he says, young and wild. At the time, his weekly satirical take on Parashat Hashavua, the Torah portion of the week, was a Friday night hit on Channel
3: One.
2: <laughs>
0: he take biblical stories and turn them into comedy bits. It was funny, insightful, outrageous, and always irreverent. Is the Bible good source material for comedy?
2: Uh, yes. The Bible wasn't written to make you laugh, okay? But it also has some spots that has humor in it. When Sarah gets the uh, announcement that she's gonna be a mother in the age of uh, 93, she said, God made laughter. Tzchok asali Elohim, which means God himself. Okay? God Almighty created laughter for us. So if He created laughter, we won't use it.
0: And that approach is what brought us to Gil's house in Mihmorit by the sea, to ask about the decidedly not funny tale of the concubine in Giva.
2: First, it's an awful, terrible story, okay? And it starts in, um, where, where is it? In those days when there was no king in Israel. Every man can do what he desires. And we are told about this guy from uh, the uh, Levite, the Levite tribe, that he has a concubine.
0: The Levite was making his way home from a visit with his concubine's father in Bethlehem. Here's actress Sarah Rosen, reading from the Book of Judges.
4: He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus—
0: Jebus, by the way, is Jerusalem, which at the time was not inhabited by Israelites.
4: The day was far spent, and the servant said to his master, Come on, let's turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. But his master said to him, No, we will not turn aside into a city of foreigners who don't belong to the people of Israel. We'll continue on to Giv'ah. So the whole entourage, the
0: Levite, the concubine, the servant, the donkeys, they all continued on till just before sunset, they reached Giv'ah, a hilltop north of Jerusalem.
2: Which belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, not Netanyahu, Benjamin, okay? And
4: They turned aside there to spend the night at Giva. The Levite went in and sat down in the open square of the city, but no one took them in to spend the night. It was probably cold.
0: They were all tired from the long journey and just wanted to find a place to put their heads down. But in the early Iron Age, otherwise known as the days before Airbnb, this wasn't such a simple task. They just waited and waited. Till later that evening, an old man who lived in Giv'ah came back from his work in the field.
4: When the old man looked up and saw the wayfarer in the open square of the city, he said, Where are you going, and where do you come from?
0: The desperate Levite answered,
4: Oh, we? We're just passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, where we come from. We're on our way home, but nobody's offered to take us in.
0: I imagine the old man looked around, trying to gauge whether this Levite was someone he wanted to invite into his home. Before he could make up his mind, the Levite chimed in.
4: We have our own straw and fodder for our donkeys, and bread and wine for me and the woman and the young man along with us. We need nothing more.
0: That was the clincher. And the old man said,
4: Peace be to you. I'll take care of you and all your needs. Just don't spend the night in the square. So he brought him into the house and fed the donkeys. And they all washed their feet and ate and drank.
0: Okay, so up to this point, it all seems very PG. Some tired travelers are walking home, they find themselves in a foreign city where they don't know a soul, and a kind-hearted old local invites them in to spend the night. A nice little tale of hospitality. But this is where the story takes an ugly turn, and it's also where you might want to skip a few minutes if you're listening with kids. Back in the old man's house, everyone was eating, drinking, telling stories. And suddenly, they began hearing loud voices from outside.
4: The men of the city, a perverse lot, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door.
2: These are probably youth. They were horny as hell. They were... Um, Not very friendly to strangers. They were violent. They were shitholes. Why do you say
4: assholes? They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house so that we may have intercourse with him.
0: The old man, the host, went out to these punks and said,
4: no, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Since this man is my guest, do not do this vile thing.
0: But then, instead of just slamming the door in their faces, he made a surprising and frankly horrendous counteroffer.
4: Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Ravish them and do whatever you want to them. But against this man, don't do such a vile thing.
0: The crowd rejected the host's offer. They were set on the Levite.
2: And, of course, he doesn't want to, you know. He said, I, I don't want them to rape me, so I, I'll give them my concubine. It was a schmuck. Pardon my French. So he opens the door and takes his uh, concubine and pushes her away from the house. And
4: They wantonly raped her and abused her all through the night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the old man's house where her master was.
2: And in the morning, he finds her dead after they molested her all night. And he, of course, is very angry. You know, he couldn't anticipate it. This was stupid.
0: He took her body, hoisted it on the donkey, and returned to his hometown.
4: When he had entered his house, he took a knife and cut his concubine into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Then he commended the men whom he sent, Thus shall you say to all the Israelites, Has such a thing ever happened since the day that the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until this day? Consider it, take counsel, and speak out.
0: The Levite suddenly flips. From this awful guy who basically got his concubine killed, he becomes a messenger of morality, chopping up her corpse and sending it out to shock the nation. But Gil, he sees it differently.
2: This is also a terrible thing to do. If you care for your concubine, burial, pray, say the Kaddish, and maybe send letters. You send pieces of a body? Are you crazy? So this Levite guy, I don't like him.
0: Like him or not, the Levite clearly knew what pulled at the strings of these proto-Israelites. All those who received body parts from Dan to Beersheba were outraged. They decided to get together and punish
2: the transgressors. And this uh, begins actually a civil war between all the tribes and uh, the Benjamin tribe. In the ensuing fighting,
0: more than 70,000 people were killed. And Benjamin was almost annihilated.
4: The Israelites put the Benjaminites to the sword. The city, the people, the animals, and all that remained. Also the remaining towns they set on fire.
0: So this is a really horrible story, right? And you're a comedian. Is there anything funny that you can say about this story? No. (laughs) The story of the concubine in Givah was, and still is, a cautionary tale. It's taught in schools here and has become a shorthand of sorts for a lack of leadership. It begins, you might remember, with one evocative phrase. In those days there was no king in Israel. And look, it says. Look what happened. Rape, murder, civil war, our collective low point. But it's also, ironically, a tale of national rebirth, of reconciliation and resilience. See, following the horrors of Giv'ah, more and more Israelites started demanding a king, someone who'd unite the 12 tribes and make them into a single nation. And finally, a king was found. Saul, the son of Kish. From, you guessed it, the tribe of Benjamin. And that first king of Israel, where did he set up his capital, his palace, really? In his hometown, Givah, the very same hilltop where the concubine had been raped and murdered. And also, of course, the very same hilltop where David and I went exploring. Tel el ful. Or is it? To answer that question, we need to jump in time from the days of the Levite and Saul to about 180 years ago. Starting in the 19th century, there was an influx of Western travelers to the Holy Land. Pilgrims and poets, missionaries and archeologists, surveyors and scientists, Many of them, of course, were religious Christians who had grown up hearing the stories of the Bible. And now that they could visit the scene of action of all these famous tales.
5: They understood that there is a possibility not only to read the text at home, but to read the text in the field and try to understand the text on the background of the geography and the climate and geology and morphology
0: and so on. Israel Finkelstein, an archaeologist from Tel Aviv University, says that the Bible was, essentially, moving out of the realm of legendary fables that happened long ago in a faraway, almost imaginary land, and becoming a collection of stories that happened in real places that people could now visit, and see, and excavate. One of those early researchers was an American biblical scholar from Connecticut by the name of Edward Robinson. In 1838, he came to Palestine, and together with a missionary, the Reverend Eli Smith, started connecting dozens of modern locations with places mentioned in the Bible.
5: One day, Robinson went out of Jerusalem, and then he came to Anata, and he understood that he's in Anatot, And then he went to Jabba, and he understood that this is Geba. And then he went to Muchmas, that it's the same Michmash. And then he understood all of a sudden that there is the preservation of the names, which means that you can read about a place named Geba, but then you go, you know, north of Jerusalem, there's a village named Jabba. So one and one, you, you get a
0: two. Among the places Robinson visited was a hill called Ful. The name, which means the Mound of Fava Beans, or for all the Bostonians out there, the Bean Hill, actually didn't correlate to anything he knew from the Bible. But nevertheless...
6: Robinson was the first to identify Talel ful as uh, Old Testament Giva, uh, north of uh, Jerusalem. That's Shimon Gibson. Uh, I'm a professor of uh, practice in archaeology and history at uh, the University of uh, North Carolina in Charlotte.
0: The site's location, Robinson and many others noticed, was right where the Bible said it would be. Tel el Ful does command uh, the road leading from Jerusalem towards uh, the the north. There have been four main excavations at Tel el Ful since Robinson made that initial identification. Charles Warren in 1868, William Foxwell Albright in the early 20s, Paul Lapp in 1964, and Shimon himself, together with Tzvika Greenhut in the mid-90s. These archaeologists uncovered many ruins, including what they believed were the remains of a fortress and a tower. And all this seemed to support the hypothesis that Tel el-Ful was indeed the very same place where, 3,000 years earlier, the concubine had been murdered, and where King Saul had his headquarters.
6: Yes, I would say that Tel el-Ful is indeed Giva the place of uh, King Saul. The wonderful thing would be if one could excavate there and find an inscription which says, this is Giva, or uh, an inscription mentioning uh, King Saul. But these things are very rare. The question is whether or not this uh, site is compatible with the biblical texts on the one hand and with archaeological remains on the other. And it is, It, it, it is compatible. There's only one small problem.
5: There is no fortress of King Saul there. Albright's fortress of King Saul at Tell is sheer imagination. It does not exist. There are no remains that can be made into a, a big fortress there.
0: The archaeology, he says, simply doesn't fit. Tell al in my opinion, is an easy
5: case. Because it is not a situation that one can come and say,
0: well, you know,
5: in the future, let's dig 50 meters away on the slope and we'll find there, you know, the treasures of King Saul. It's not going to happen. What can be found has been found. And basically we know the story of the site.
0: Meaning that it looks like it's a mound of civilization, but it's actually just a hill. It's a hill with a small ruin. That's it. All right, what's going on here? How do some archeologists find a fortress and then others come along and say it's not there? I mean, isn't this kind of a straightforward matter? Apparently not quite. There's this cliché about how early biblical archaeologists excavated with a trowel in one hand and a Bible in the other.
5: It's not a cliché. I think this is, this is basically correct, I think. And I think Tel Ful is a good example.
0: See, archaeology, and especially archaeology in this area, Israel argues, often has more to do with what you think you're going to find than what you actually find.
5: Albright was a a traditionalist, you know, for him the Bible was history and, you know, in the biblical order and so on. So the whole archaeology sequence of Tellerful had been constructed according to the biblical verses, in my opinion. When you see the way that Albright described the results of the excavations of Tel El Ful, well, you know, you, Albright was working in the sun, here a wall, there a wall, here a piece of pottery, then a piece of pottery, you know. And then one needs to make a story from this. So he basically looked at the biblical text and saw that there is Gibeah.
0: For Albright, that was enough. Since he believed Tel El Ful was gibba, the large building he discovered there had to be, he thought, King Saul's palace. And that in turn was proof that the biblical account was accurate.
5: There has always been a lot of wishful thinking and there has always been a lot of secular argumentation in the classic biblical archaeology. And once you come in with modern tools and you look at it, you can pull the carpet from under the entire foundation and the whole thing goes down in no time, you know, collapses.
0: Okay, where does that leave us? Was Givah this hill, the next one over, and why does it even matter? Well, to begin with it matters because we all want to know our past. To understand our connection to the land. Especially if it's a contentious place like a hilltop in East Jerusalem. But then there's another layer here too. See, for many people, Biblical stories need to be true. As if their power and the validity of their message are somehow diminished if they aren't. So what about our poor concubine? Was she just the figment of someone's imagination? Were the Benjaminites really that vicious? And King Saul? did he end the chaos and unite the nation? On this at least, Shimon and Israel basically agree.
5: It is quite easy to see that it is a polemic story. It is a relatively late story. It was put in writing probably after 587, after the destruction of Jerusalem.
6: The story itself cannot be proven uh, one way or another based on the archeological sort of evidence.
0: Both men acknowledge that even though the polemic tale was written hundreds of years after it's set, it might be based on some vague memory of a real event. But even if it isn't, what really matters, Israel believes, is the message it tried to convey.
5: If you're asking me, my dear Mishi, naive reading of a biblical story doesn't give uh, enough respect to the text, because the authors of these texts were sophisticated, they were extremely sophisticated. They knew what they were doing. They were selling their ideology. So they were not naive, we are naive.
0: In the case of the Levites' concubine, and really the entire Book of Judges, there's a clear bottom line. By Amim,
5: and Melech B'israel, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And it uh, uh, prepares the background for the appearance of the Davidic dynasty. First Saul, of course, but mainly the Davidic dynasty.
0: So the whole story at Givah, at least according to Israel, was just a way to emphasize the need for a king and to justify the existence of a royal dynasty in the region. As we'll see in the next act, it wasn't Saul or David or Solomon who ended up leaving their mark on Tel El Ful. It would be another king, the second king of the hill, who in his presence and mainly in his absence, dominates Tel El Ful till this day. Act 2, Vila Hussein. Muhammad Kutub isn't royalty. But he certainly seems like he could be.
7: I was born here in Jerusalem in 1943. And my parents and my grand-grandparents are also from Jerusalem.
0: In fact, if he wanted to, Muhammad could have continued that list on and on. See, his family, the Kutubs, have been in Jerusalem since the 12th century. That's the 12th century. More than 800 years ago.
8: Have
7: please. Please have a seat. Uh, sit down here. Oh, thank you so
0: much. We met with Muhammad and his wife Foz in their spacious home in Beit Hanina, at the foot of Tel El Ful, just a few hundred meters down the hill from the abandoned palace where David had taken me. And is this house still today called Villa Hussein?
7: Well, that's what uh, got stuck in our address. We call it Villa Hussein, Beit Hanina, East Jerusalem. That's our address.
0: We'll get back to why the Kutub House is called Vila Hussein. But for now, all you need to know is that Bet Hanina is a Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem. Today, it has more than 35,000 residents. And everywhere you look, you see cranes and construction sites and new apartment buildings. But when Muhammad was a kid, Bet Hanina was just another small village on the road from Jerusalem to Ramallah.
7: In the 50s, it was uh, vineyards and olive trees and uh, figs, and the people were uh, living off the land, you know.
0: In a way, not all that much had changed in that area since the days in which King Saul either did or did not rule from the top of the hill. I mean, empires came and went and rulers changed, but daily life itself was surprisingly stable. Generation after generation of farmers grew their crops, cared for their animals, and worshipped their gods. There were, however, a few outstanding events. In the 1st century CE, en route to conquer Jerusalem and vanquish the temple, the Roman army's 10th legion camped on Tel El Ful. And more than 18 centuries later, in the very same spot, the British fought a big battle against a coalition of Germans and Turks during World War I. Then came 1948. To some, the glorious War of Independence. To others, the catastrophic Nakba. At the end of the fighting and after the signing of the armistice agreements, East Jerusalem, which included Bet Hanina and Tel El Ful, ended up on the Jordanian side of the border.
6: Arriving in New York on the Queen Mary is Dr. Ralph Bunch, acting United Nations mediator in Palestine. He reports on the successfully concluded armistices that have ended armed conflict between Israel and the Arab states.
8: You have to go back to 1948. It was a tremendous shock to the Palestinians,
0: you see. That's Muhammad Alami. I'm from Jerusalem. I'm quite proud of it, you know. Like Muhammad Kutub, Muhammad Alami comes from one of the most celebrated Palestinian families in town. How many generations have you been in Jerusalem?
8: Oh, well over 30, yeah. So you're a real Jerusalemite. I am. It's nice to have so many centuries behind you. Uh, It doesn't matter who rule in Jerusalem as long as I stay here.
0: The Alamis outlasted the Mamluks, the Ottomans, the British. And in 1948, you became suddenly a Jordanian. Yes.
8: I never had a choice in my life to decide what. So I just float.
0: (laughs) Not all the local Palestinians were as sanguine about this turn of events. There was, Muhammad alami admits, a lot of... ...mistrust, fear. You see, Jordan was ruled by the Hashemite family, who were descendants of the Sharifs of Mecca. They were outsiders from the Arabian Peninsula, elevated to the throne with the support of Lawrence of Arabia and the British. In short, they were most definitely not Palestinian. And that meant that they lacked legitimacy, both in Jordan itself and perhaps even more so among the Palestinians of the West Bank and Jerusalem, who...
8: ...held the view that uh, the Jordanian royal family collaborated uh, with the uh, Israelis in some cases and so on. Uh, it's just rumors, you see. But certainly there was mistrust.
0: Iran Kiaw is a research fellow at the Forum for Regional Thinking. He specializes in Jerusalem geopolitics, and he explained to me that the city was a center of Palestinian nationalism.
9: Rising and evolving uh, Palestinian nationalism.
0: Those national aspirations had, of course, been dealt a severe blow in 1948. And now, once again, the Palestinians found themselves under foreign, albeit Arab, rule. Some even called it... The
9: Jordanian occupation of Jerusalem.
0: Most of the time, this tension remained underneath the surface. But occasionally, things got out of hand.
9: Uh, Up to the point where there were violent uh, clashes between uh, uh, protesters and the Jordanian security forces.
6: To the old city of Jerusalem, King Abdullah went for the Friday prayers. Among his own people, he walked unguarded and unafraid.
9: Well, maybe the most manifest example, Palestinian nationalists assassinated the Jordanian
6: king. But there were those who hated him. And as the king entered the mosque to pray, a young fanatic killed the one man who might have brought peace to the Middle East.
8: Well, I must have been about uh, six years old, you know, thereabouts. Um, I was visiting my um, grandfather, and we usually had the radio on for the Friday prayers. Uh, And then suddenly we heard shots. (laughs)
0: King Abdallah of Jordan was assassinated in 1951, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. His violent end shocked the entire region. But it left a lasting mark on the man who was standing right next to him when he was shot. His 15-year-old grandson, Hussein. According to some of his biographers, Hussein was actually saved when one of the assassin's bullets deflected off a medal his grandfather had insisted he wear. In any event, everything about that day remained etched in his mind, including the setting. He would, he promised himself, become the protector of Jerusalem's haram sharif and its holy mosques. Less than 13 months later, the teenager was crowned king, King Hussein of Jordan. From the get-go, establishing his control over Jerusalem was a priority for the young monarch.
9: Hussein tried to undermine Palestinian nationalism and to convince Palestinians that they can live happily under his control.
2: Uh, King Hussein, he wanted to, to make Jerusalem as a second capital to Jordan, or at least a spiritual uh, capital. That's Dr. Abdallah Sawalha. I'm the founder and director of Center for Israel Studies in Amman. Now, one good way
0: for King Hussein to have more of a presence in Jerusalem, Abdallah explained to me over Skype, was to have more of a presence in Jerusalem. And that brings us back to Muhammad Kutub and his villa, Villa Hussein. In the late 50s, Muhammad's father, Abdelmoti Kutub, bought a large plot of land in Beit Hanina.
7: It was fashionable for people to move from the old city, to come and... Uh buy land here in Beit Hanina and Shofat and to build villas. But the Kutub's
0: new house was no ordinary villa. It was designed by a famous Egyptian architect, Said Karim. It had four floors, a semi-circular private driveway, a water fountain at the entrance, and a huge garden in the back. Really fancy, especially for those days. In 1960, the construction on the villa was done, and the Kutub family moved in.
7: We lived here for a couple of months, and uh, one day I was hunting in Salfit, you know, with my cousin and uh, uncle. At
0: the end of the hunt, they headed back to the villa in Bet And
7: we came past this house. We saw a lot of uh, military cars and so on. So we couldn't stop because I had uh, those shotguns and so on. I didn't know what was going on. huh? So we continued to my uncle's house in Sheikh Jarrah. And then after a while, I came back. I said, What's go- what was going on here in the house? They told me King Hussein was here.
0: That's right. Apparently, King Hussein himself had stopped by for a visit. And why? Well, he had seen the Kutub's gorgeous new home, fell in love with it, and wanted to rent it and make it into his own Jerusalem residence. Hussein was only 25 at the time. He had already been married and divorced, and acquired somewhat of a reputation as a jet-setting playboy. He loved racing cars, flying airplanes, and by all accounts,
7: beautiful women.
0: Now, when a king wants to become your tenant, I guess you can't really say no.
7: Well, of course, I mean, it's uh, an honor to to have a... This relationship with King Hussein.
0: So, without too much hesitation, Abdelmoti Kutub offered it to him uh,
7: with pleasure. They soon signed a lease. It was rented for 3,500 Jordan dinars per annum.
0: Was that a lot of money? Oh,
7: it was quite a lot of money at the time.
0: Uh. The Kutubs, who had basically just moved in, repacked their bags and moved out. In their lavish new villa, it was now a palace an actual palace.
7: Yes, it was uh, called uh, King Hussein's royal palace. And there was a crown uh, and a sign here uh, on the street saying, don't blow your horn, you know, because this is a royal palace. Uh, And these are things from the past, you know, good memories.
0: Do you live now in the room that King Hussein used to live in?
7: in? The bedroom? No, it's vacant. It's on the third floor. Do you like to see? Muhammad and his wife, Foz, gave us a tour of the house.
0: They showed us what was once Hussein's private kitchen, the official dining hall, and the surprisingly simple royal master bedroom.
2: This is uh,
5: King Hussein's bedroom,
0: this one. Yeah. Foz opened the door leading out onto the balcony.
2: Wow, beautiful balcony.
0: Yeah. For five years, King Hussein enjoyed long, serene evenings on that balcony, looking out towards Nebi Samuel and, in true Davidic style, chatting with women hanging up their laundry on the nearby roofs. During that time, he got remarried to a British 20-year-old, Antoinette Gardiner, whom he met, fittingly, on the set of Lawrence of Arabia. Their first son, Jordan's current king, was named for Hussein's beloved slain grandfather, Abdallah. But life wasn't all fun and games, even for a jovial guy like Hussein. In 1964, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, was established, and Hussein was afraid he would become the target of a popular national revolt.
7: Well, he was blamed uh, by a lot of people that he was investing more in Amman than he is investing here in Jerusalem. But King Hussein wanted to establish himself here to show the people that he is uh, also concerned about uh, the West Bank.
0: So Hussein decided he'd build himself an official palace in Jerusalem. No longer some rented-out villa, but rather a magnificent stronghold that would bolster his standing in the region— and signal how close Jerusalem was to his heart. And since he had spent all those years in the Kutub's house, it made sense to select a place nearby, a place with an even better view, right at the top of the hill. The palace Hussein envisioned would be a masterpiece, the most beautiful house in all of Jerusalem. This is where the royal family would come when they wanted to escape the sweltering Amman summers, And this is where Hussein would invite guests from around the world to show them the panoramic view of the Holy Land, from the mountains of Moab all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. We've spent the last few months trying to understand how exactly King Hussein acquired the land at the top of Tel El Ful. We've gone through property deeds, been in touch with historians, archivists, officers at the land registry. And the bottom line is, we're not sure. It's possible, as many people say, especially in Jordan, that he purchased the plot from its legal Palestinian owners. It's also possible that he just annexed it. At least one reliable source told us, confidentially, that Hussein did in fact confiscate the land, but that he intended to pay the owners handsome reparations. We couldn't verify whether any money actually exchanged hands, And if so, whether it was Hussein's private money, or else Jordanian governmental funds. And this point is important, since it determines who actually owns the land today, and what can or can't be done there. In any event, in 1965, construction at the top of the hill began. Over the next two years, workers vigorously dug foundations. They poured the cement for a 10-car garage where King Hussein could park his fleet of race cars. They built extensive servant quarters. And at the very summit, they erected the concrete skeleton of the palace itself, including a basement and two stories. The walls and stone facade weren't yet ready, but almost everything else was. A staircase, columns, balconies, even space for a fireplace. It looked like finally, Three millennia after Saul, the hilltop would have its king. And then, then came the Six-Day War. June 6th, 1967 was, Chagai. Man told me, a clear day. A very clear day, yeah. Was it hot? Yeah, June. Hagai's 80 today. He's still strong, stoic, and speaks with the kind of precision and authority you'd expect from a retired colonel in the Israeli army. But I came to talk to him about that hot June day. It brings
10: me back when I was a little bit younger.
0: <laughs> At the time, Haggai was a 30-year-old intelligence officer. Of
10: the 10th Mechanized Brigade, Hativat Arel Arel Brigade.
6: For the third time since its birth as an independent state, Israel is embroiled in a war with the Arab nations that surround it. The Six Day
0: War began on June 5th, 1967, when the Israeli Air Force attacked and destroyed Egypt's airfields. The success of that preemptive strike basically determined the outcome of the war. And Israel immediately sent a pacifying message to the Jordanian king, Hussein, saying that it had no intention of fighting him in the West Bank or in Jerusalem.
2: Here's Abdallah
0: Sawalha again.
2: Our prime minister at that time, was Wasretel, he cries in the front of King Hussein to not engage in this war because he was uh, very sure that we will lose
0: this war. But the 31 year old Hussein didn't listen, and within a few hours, he decided to attack.
10: He started shooting, and we have no choice but to open another. Uh, front uh, against Jordan.
0: When Haggai looks back at those dramatic days, he can imagine an alternative course of events. One in which Hussein would have stayed out of the war. And well, the last half century, the intifadas, the wars, the violence, would have taken on a different shape. I think that
10: if he would not uh, participate to this war, Jordan could keep the West Bank, all the West Bank, Jerusalem in his hand, and he could be
0: a big winner. Whether or not that counterfactual history is convincing, here's what actually happened. Just as soon as Hussein started bombarding Jerusalem, Haggai and his friends from the Harel Brigade were mobilized. (laughs) One of their first objectives: conquering Tel El Ful. Tel el-Ful is
10: the dominant terrain in the area. A very high hill controlling very important roads, the way to Jericho and uh, the the main way from Jerusalem to Ramallah.
0: And of course, in addition to the strategic importance, there was an added symbolic incentive.
10: We knew that King Hussein uh, is building his palace
0: there. Hagai also knew that Tel el Ful was a well-guarded position. And uh, we find out uh, on the 6th of
10: June, very early in the morning, that it was fortified by tanks, a platoon or more than a platoon, a company of tanks.
0: Soon after dawn broke, the Harel Brigade commander Uri Benari gave an uh,
10: order how to conquer or how to take Tel el Ful.
0: And at 8 a.m. They charged.
10: It took about half an hour that we conquered this hill. It was not very heavy uh, shooting and so forth, and the Jordanians uh, ran away uh, to the east. For them, it was, I believe, a big surprise. At about uh, 8.39 o'clock in the morning, we were already on this hill, cleaning from Jordanian soldiers. Were people
0: killed
2: on Tel El Ful?
10: I think that uh, three or four uh, soldiers were killed on Tel El Ful itself. Israeli soldiers? Israeli soldiers, of course. But uh, the Jordanians Jordanian, uh, were... I don't remember exactly, but about 10-15 soldiers, Jordanian or more, were killed on this hill.
0: Was there also any resistance by the local population? There was no uh,
10: no population, no no civilians were there. Nothing was populated on Tel El Ful. It was empty. Uh, Bet was uh, populated with people, but they were all in their uh, villas or their buildings, and no one was on the street. They were very frightened, I believe. So you didn't even see them? No, we didn't see them. Nobody was on the street, nobody. We didn't see any Arab people there.
0: I asked Haggai if, as they were charging up the hill, he thought about the locals, people like the Kutub family, Palestinian Jordanians, who were about to become Palestinian Israelis, or for that matter, if he had any chance to think at all about the danger or about Jerusalem's old city, which was just a few miles away.
10: During the fight itself, you have not... uh the. The time to think, is it danger or not? Uh, You are moving and uh, with the force and succeeding. And uh, the the feeling when you are on the top of the hill and it's clean and clear from enemy, this is a good uh, feeling, of course. Jerusalem was like on your hands, uh, lying on your hands. And uh, it was very, very impressive. We did it. And from there we moved to Ramallah. We took Ramallah. And uh, later on, on the following day, we took Jericho.
0: Even though Tel El Ful is just off the highway, Haggai uses almost every day on his way to work. He's only been back a handful of times since 1967. But about 10 years ago, Haggai, who was the Minister of Immigration's chief of staff, was asked to take a visiting Jordanian dignitary on a tour of the area. The Jordanian in question was the head of military intelligence. But back in 67, they quickly figured out. It was
10: the a company commander of the tanks that were fighting against us in Tel El Ful.
0: The two former enemies went back to the hilltop where they had battled against each other. Everything around them was practically unrecognizable. New neighborhoods, tens of thousands of new houses, new roads, highways. But amazingly, the hill itself hadn't changed a bit. You see, Tel El Ful is basically a time capsule. It's exactly as it was on June 6th, 1967, when the two men had last been there. They walked around the ruins of the palace.
10: And I told him this is the place where the tank was hit by us.
0: He said, "Well, this is the place. I said, I know, I saw the tank there. What was it like, I wondered, standing there with his old foe, reminiscing about their exact locations when they had tried to kill each other? Look,
10: uh, during the years, you have different feelings. When we were young, it was another feeling. And nowadays, of course, you said, okay, You make peace with your enemy. So we shake hands and that's it.
0: Haggai and the Jordanian officer could meet because the landlord of that battlefield, King Hussein, signed a peace treaty with Israel in 1994. Four and a half years later, he died of cancer, having never returned to Tel El Ful to see the remains of what was supposed to be his majestic palace. But our story ends more or less where it began. Back in the time of the Levite, eons before King Hussein ever set his eyes on the hill, there was, you'll recall, no king in Israel. And Tel El Ful seems to have its own internal logic, its own primordial curse, when there's no king around, things start to fall apart. Ish hayashar benav yase. Everyone does whatever they see fit. That, in a sentence, is Tel El Ful today. Act 3, The Frozen Palace. As we were walking back to our car at the end of my very first visit to Tel El Ful last spring, David Green and I were trying to make sense of this odd architectural skeleton we had just seen. In a way it's like seeing a ghost, a ghost of a different time, and as strange as it is to say this about a physical location, a ghost of a different place.
1: It's amazing to me that this palace, the construction stopped on this palace more than 50 years ago, and it's it's the only thing in Jerusalem that hasn't changed since then. It's just it's almost completely intact. And Israel never, never touched it. It's
0: like a fossil of 1967. <laughs> right. Almost nothing has happened on the top of Tel El Ful since Chagai and his friends conquered it half a century ago. And why is that? God knows that Jerusalem is growing at a dizzying pace. Every possible vacant lot has been turned into a new apartment building. Every last green valley or terraced hill has become a new neighborhood or shopping center. But Tel El Ful is different. Ironically, its ambiguous ownership and unclear legal status are what spared it from the fangs of real estate developers and municipal city planners. It's just too sensitive. And no one, neither the Israelis nor the Jordanians, want to touch it. It would spark a diplomatic crisis at the very highest levels, Hussam Watad told me. Husam is the director of the Minhala Lati in Beit which is sort of like being the mayor of the neighborhood. And he's right. Any movement at all on this hill, any construction, any excavation, any attempt to clean it up even, would be seen as an assault on Jerusalem's delicate, often unspoken status quo.
9: If something will take place, if, for example, a Palestinian group from Bet Hanina will try to uh, establish uh, this uh, Hashemite structure as a community center, then it will seem to the Israeli authorities as a kind of a creeping takeover. That's Eran Kiao, the Jerusalem
0: geopolitics expert,
9: again. If a group of settlers will enter this structure suddenly, then, of course, it will turn on all the alarm bells in Amman, saying, oh, you can't use this Hashemite structure for a settlement, right?
0: And so the half-built palace still stands, a monument to stagnation, a symbol of unfulfilled dreams, of wasted potential. The Hashemites, David said.
1: Couldn't move it, they couldn't finish it, and Israel didn't touch it, didn't demolish it, didn't finish it, didn't take it over and, and make another use of it. And it's, it's, um, it's stood here, the, the shell of this building, for the last 50 years. It's now exactly 50 years since the war.
0: In a way, it's easier for all sides involved just to forget about Tel El Ful, to pretend it doesn't exist. Despite the fact that you can see it from many places, that it's high and, and uh,
9: overlooking uh, its surroundings, it's, it's almost transparent. It's a liminal place. It's in between the neighborhoods, and it's in between the Jews and the Arabs. It's in between the desert and and the settled land. It's a place that is kind of stuck in the middle.
0: So, what does a forgotten place look like? Who steps in when there's no king around? Well, you've heard the concubine story, so I'm sure you can guess. The place is neglected, Hussam says. No one takes care of it. It's mainly used by criminals, violent people, drug dealers, addicts, prostitutes, people of the night. There are piles of trash everywhere. Shredded tires, plastic bottles, dirty diapers. It's kind of disgusting. But there's also something mesmerizing about this filth. About the gap between the grime, the stunning views, and the decaying gray regal structure. The parents of Bet Hanina, of course, don't see all this poetic beauty. Instead, they just warn their kids not to go there. Take Nivin Dijani, for instance.
10: I uh, always um, hear that it's a very dangerous place. Uh, people... Maybe taking drugs there, smoking. I'm afraid.
0: Naveen, her husband Ashraf Nashashibi, and their two kids, Tala and Tarek, live right beneath the palace, a five-minute walk down the hill. But Tarek, who's almost 13 and is very obedient, has only been there once in his whole life.
11: Well, once it was snowing here, and my sister and I chose like to get a sleigh and to slide down on the snow. It's going to be really, really nice. But we went up, 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 and we found like this place. It was really, really dark, and we couldn't see anything. And there were like electrical webs all around it. So we thought it's a good idea to go back instead of making trouble. I, I can tell Tarek, don't go there. If he wants, he will do it. But um, I think always he listens to us. <laughs> yeah. It's actually really, really scary. Also, like, alcohol people, drunk people will be there. And yeah, so it's not really safe up there. So I don't suggest to go.
0: And tell me, in your imagination, in your dreams, what do you think one could do with the palace?
11: Well, if right now I close my eyes and imagine...
0: Tarek said he'd like it to become a palace again, with a real king and a queen... I asked him whether he thought it would be fun to live right next door to a palace. You know, hordes of tourists, overpriced tchotchkes, security barriers. But Tarek, he only sees the upside.
11: It would be, like, great because the first thing I'm going to do is just to take a selfie.
0: What I like about Tarek's idea is that it's just as plausible, just as worthy, just as likely, as any of the other ideas I heard while working on this story. Some people said it should become an archaeological park featuring King Saul lookalikes. Others suggested moving the Knesset here, or building a museum for King Hussein, or a swimming pool, or picnic area. You see, each one at the end of the day has his or her own fantasies about Tel El Ful. Uh,
7: it is linked to King Hussein in those uh, golden days of Jordan, when the two West Bank and the West, uh, East Bank were united. And there was freedom of movement and so on. This is uh, also a cause for uh, uh, remembering.
10: There is no emotion. We fought there. People were killed there. That's it.
9: The kids smoking pot and drinking alcohol in the, in, uh, behind the, the concrete skeleton is not less important than the kings and the, the rulers. Uh, building uh, palaces in this land. They're actually the real thing.
0: For me, Tel El Ful has become a place to come and think. Think about how history goes in one direction and not another. Think about what if. About what could. As my thoughts bounce between King Saul and King Hussein, between the Levite, the concubine, the Kutubs, the Alamis, Haggai, Tarek, it seems like the entire history of Jerusalem could be told through this hill. I mean, sure, like many other sites in this country, it has its own particular past. A biblical one, maybe. An archaeological one, perhaps. A historical one, definitely. But really, at least to me, Tel El Ful is a metaphor of our lives here. This deserted, litter strewn mound has seen cycles of tears and blood, dreams and hopes. It's been home to royals and to shepherds, to soldiers and to kids. It's brought together lovers and enemies, Arabs and Jews, Jordanians, Israelis, and Palestinians. And the hill itself? As we battle each other and kill each other, as we make peace and make war, the hill just continues to stand there, oblivious. Like the Alami family, it doesn't really care who rules Jerusalem just as long as it can stay exactly where it is. That's Tel El Ful. And that's also our episode. You can hear all Israel Story episodes in both English and Hebrew on our site, on iTunes, and on any of the other main podcast platforms. Also, I keep saying this, but iTunes reviews really help us reach new listeners. So if you have a moment, do us a favor. Rate us and write a review. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Thanks so much to everyone who responded to our Giving Tuesday campaign and donated to the show. The Friedman kids and 104-year-old Ruth Richman say thanks as well. As you all know, we're an independent show and we couldn't exist without support from listeners like you. You help us produce stories of a nuanced Israel you help us document the joy and the heartbreak of this tiny country. So if you haven't yet done so, join the Mishpacha, the Israel Story family, and make a donation on our site, IsraelStory.org. And if you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, simply drop us a line at sponsor at prx.org. This Tel El Ful project has kept our entire team very busy for many months. Yuli Shiloch, Hannah Barg, and Zev Levi spent weeks researching and tracking down anyone connected to the hill. We could only include some of those voices, but as you can imagine, there are many, many more Full stories. The original music in today's episode was created by Ari Weni, with sound design help from Yochai Meital. Julie Subrim edited the episode, Ben Wallach recorded it, and Sela Weisblum mixed it all up. Thanks to Dalia Belkin, whose brother, Ehud Cheni was killed on Tel El-Ful in 67. To Chaim Silverstein from Imish Kahech or Keep Jerusalem. To the folks at the Royal Hashemite Courts in Amman, the National Library of Jordan, the Albright Institute, and Visit Palestine. To Yoni Yav, Mustafa Alami, Lina and Abud Kutub, Muhammad Dajani, Simon Katt, Zach Sitterman, and Avi Schlein. To our tape-sinkers Michael Falero and Charlotte and Helen Franchino in Aman. To Mikey Ezrahi, who shot beautiful videos of Helel Ful, which will soon be on our site along with many pictures of the palace. To Nomi Schneider, Hadash Steif, Guido Navital, and Eve Snyder for production help. To Federica Sasso, David and Dorothy Harmon, Esther Werdiger and Wayne Hoffman over at Tablet. And to David Green for introducing us to this hill to begin with. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yuli Shiloh, Ari Wenig, Hannah Barg, Yochai Meital, Maya Kosover, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Zev Levi, Eti Danon, and Rotem Tzin. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back with a completely different topic in our next Israel Story episode. So till then, Shalom, Salaam and
3: yalla bye. When